Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. We are rolling through Spooktober with our Scary Story series. So welcome in to another episode, which is going to be Tales. Another exciting installment of Tales. What will he tell us about today? Probably something that'll ruin my sleep for the next week. But Probably, but it'll be fine. <laughs> Before we get into that, I did want to mention that we recently did an episode on the Gray Man of Ben McDewey, and in our serious in, journalism... In the ways that we do things. We determined his name is Jeff with a G, and it spawned a new type of merch that we are offering which are silly cryptid posters so if you are interested in getting a beautiful portrait of Jeff the Gray Man of Ben McDewey you can head on over to the squonkandthehag.com there is a little merch link and you can go buy your own poster <laughs> and who knows we may have more silly cryptids thrown down the line I'm sure that's not going to be the only one I'm hoping for it I'm planning on it I don't care if I have to make them up on my own. We're going to have more. It was fun yes, to yes make. We are. It was a lot of fun to make. So if anyone's not aware, I am a graphic designer by trade. So I design all of our merch and like our logo and all that kind of stuff. So this was fun for me. It looks really good too. Yay! I'm thinking of getting one and hanging it in my bathroom. Would that be weird? Do it and and just don't don't tell Chris that you you hung it in there and just let him discover it on his own. So, anyway, Cracko, take it away. Moving on to the Cracko Tales. It will make you afraid of airplanes, probably. I'm already afraid of airplanes. Well, I'm about to make it a whole lot worse, because today we're talking about the, the ghosts of Flight 401. I'm already terrified to fly. Yeah, and, and, like, I didn't even know airplanes were a thing that could be haunted. You know, I thought, like, cemeteries, haunted houses, places like that, but, like, I did not think about an airplane being haunted. I'm pretty sure my computer's haunted. Apparently anything can be haunted if you try hard enough. So the, the story begins on December 29th, 1972. The plane, it was a, the specific model was a TriStar L-1011. It was with Eastern Airlines. It took off from New York around 9.20 in the afternoon and was going to Miami. This aircraft had, for the, at the time, it was very advanced. It had like a lot of the really fancy flight control systems and even a kitchen below deck that was connected to the cabin with elevators. Ooh, I didn't know they put fancy. elevators. I, I didn't know they put elevators in, in planes. I didn't know that was a thing. I looked it up and like it, it doesn't look that much bigger than a, a regular plane to me, but apparently it had like a full kitchen. So the plane that was used for this flight was about was only about four months old, so it was still pretty new. On this evening, there was a 106 passengers on board and about 70 empty seats, so the plane was pretty full. There were three crew members in the cockpit, there were two pilots, a flight engineer who sat behind them, 
and then uh, the captain. The captain was a highly experienced 55-year-old named Robert Loft, who had nearly 30,000 hours of flying experience. He sat in the left seat. Co-pilot, which was a 39-year-old named Albert Stockstill, who had previously flown in the Air Force and had about 6,000 hours of flight experience. Usually the captain's the one with the responsibility and final authority of what the aircraft does, but Flight 401 was being flown by the co-pilot and the captain was just acting as the supporting pilot. He was, he was just there for emotional support. He just wanted to give him a hug if he needed it. Pretty much. He was like, you, you give this a try, I'm just going to sit over here and read. But in the flight I engineer sat behind them. Oh, go, go ahead. I was going to say, I really hope that wasn't the case. <laughs> I don't I think just... it was. I think it was a, a situation of where he may have been getting some extra training or something, and he was giving his go, giving a hand at like flying the plane himself and doing it all himself. But yeah. the captain was there just in case he needed anything. And he had 6,000 hours of flight experience, so it wasn't like this was day one. Yeah, no, he had been flying for quite a while. He was even in the Air Force, too, so... Yeah. Uh, then you got the flight engineer. Now, planes today, we'll, we'll go over that here in just a minute, but planes today no longer have a flight engineer that sits behind them. It's all done with computers and stuff. But the, uh, the flight engineer set behind those two, they're also referred to as an FE, just flight engineer for short. They didn't fly the aircraft. Instead, they were in charge of operating the systems such as like engines, hydraulics, electrical, and fuel. The engineer on this flight was a 51-year-old named Donald Repo. He had 16,000 hours of flight experience. This shows you my intellectual peak, but I, I only kind of know, I, I didn't know they were called a flight engineer, but like, it just makes you think of the movie Airplane, where they had you know, the, the, oh, yeah. the two at the front, and then like that side panel where the, the engineer sat. Yeah, just, just in the corner, just in a little cubby hole. Yeah. The modern aircraft today, they don't use an engineer since a computer handles all of that stuff. It monitors everything. There's sensors and stuff for that now. You don't need a person to manually do it anymore. The cockpit also, they also have an extra seat that's called a jump seat. Depending on the airline policy, those seats are used to transport off-duty staff members. On this specific flight, a ground engineer was riding back home and was also in the cockpit. So we got like a total of four people in the cockpit. Uh, we've got our co-pilot, our uh, captain, and then uh, flight engineer, and then the ground crew that's just off-duty and flying back. So this this ground engineer that's actually was being transported back, he was he actually managed to survive this crash and would later help the investigators determine what had happened and what led to this plane crash. Also, what had helped was the black box that airplanes have. I included a bunch of information that I found on black boxes because I thought it was very interesting and I thought it they were not as complicated as they are, but... I had a feeling they were complicated, but I do find stuff like this interesting too. <laughs> so soon after a plane crashes, investigators immediately locate the black box that all airplanes have. They're cockpit voice recorders and can pick up conversations of the crew as well as any other useful sounds like alarms, the sounds of switches being flipped, the plane's cockpit may be equipped with up to four microphones that are connected to the black box. Airplanes, like the ones that they flew in Flight 401, used magnetic tape to store the last half an hour of audio prior to a crash. But the newer designs that they use now use an electronic memory board that don't have any moving parts, and they record about two hours of pre-crash audio. You might not know the answer, but do they always find the black box? I'm guessing, I, I don't know that right off, but I'm guessing there's some instances where, like, it takes a while to find it, depending on how bad the crash is. Yeah. But they're, they're like, along with a lot of the other details that we'll go into here in just a second, like, they're they're pretty indestructible. Like, you, you gotta try really hard to break these things. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Along with the audio black box, there's another one called the flight data recorder that records other useful information like the altitude, speed, engine performance, hydraulic pressure, electrical systems, fuel, and everything else. So it records everything that's going on with that plane. It's like being on the plane that it has so much information on it. So the modern boxes that are used today can record over 700 different parameters. That's just in the flight data recorder box. So, t obviously, modern, but modern is two hours of audio and 700 different technical points. That's crazy. Yeah, and those 700 different technical points are, like I said, hydraulic pressure, the electrical systems, fuel, everything, pretty much. So, I, like, I've seen, because obviously this is real, but, like, on CSI and, you know, the crime dramas where they recreate or not recreate but you know they go and they find the the data recorder in the black box and pretty much are able to recreate most of the events just on that information so it's crazy that some of that is kind of rooted in reality yeah and actually that's another thing that we'll, we'll get to in a minute is they they literally do that they they bring in I'll, I'll go into detail about that a little bit more, but they bring in a whole team to decipher all of that information and put together a timeline of what happened and how it happened. Oh, wow. But the portion of the box that contains information, it's reinforced with metals such as aluminum and titanium, and they're well insulated with thick layers of silica. The recordings can survive an impact force roughly 3,400 times its weight, or 3,400 Gs. And it is still usable if 5,000 pounds per square inch of crushing force is applied to the box. So that's not 5,000 pounds is on top of it. That is 5,000 pounds of crushing force. Yeah. Wow. And if they, if they are fully submerged in water, they are still usable. Or if they're placed in a fire, it can survive temperatures of up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's also the equivalent of 1,100 degrees Celsius for one hour. So, like, that steady heat for an hour is what's needed to destroy it. Yeah, you would need 2,000 degrees constantly for over an hour wow. to, to destroy Wow, that's not exactly it. easy to reach. Yeah, no. But, I'm sure most people knew this, but I don't know why it was a slight surprise to me. Although they're called black boxes, they're actually bright orange, so investigators can easily find them. And, if they're submerged underwater in the event of a, a water crash it automatically emits a locator signal once per second for 30 days at one as as soon as it contacts water so maybe you mentioned this at some point but did you see why it's called a black box when it's not i didn't see that in the stuff that i researched you could probably there's probably a document somewhere like wikipedia mm -hmm. if i had like specifically looked into more information about the black box there's probably a reason for it being called that but i didn't see that right off yeah i just wasn't sure if you knew not right off. No, I don't. I don't have that information. Damn it, Crackle! But the one thing <laughs> that I didn't think to look up is why it's called a black box. Shame. It's okay. You're only but human. But I think I'm only 75 frogs. It's fine. Upon locating the black box, the investigators will then take it to a lab where they can unload the data and attempt to recreate the events that led up to the accident. Usually, they bring in a team of experts to interpret the voice recordings this expert these experts may also include a language specialist as well so if in case there were they were speaking another language they can easily decipher it and figure out what happened and how 
But on this flight, a little after 11.30 that night, the pilots were making their final adjustments as they were getting close to Miami Airport. The following is an, ad an adaptation of the Black Box transcript. I have several of those in here where it'll be... I'll basically just be reading the conversations that were happening on the plane at the time. So this one is between the air, tra air traffic controller and the captain, and then later on the flight engineer jumps in, but... The captain said, go ahead and throw him out. He was telling the co-pilot to lower the wheels. The uh, And then he spoke to the air traffic controller and said, Miami Tower, do you read? Eastern 401 just turned on final. This was letting them know that they were on their final path to land. Um, they told them to continue to approach. They confirmed. Uh, the flight engineer said continuous ignition, no smoke. So they were going through their checklist of everything, checking the brakes, the radar, hydraulic panels, everything that they need to check to make sure that everything is working as it should so they can land and so far everything was fine so to, to know a little bit more about one of the issues that they were having and why they got distracted we need to talk about like how the aircraft is built and how the wheels and stuff work so the aircraft's smooth shape that, that gives it minimum airflow resistance so that way they can it, it's you know it's more aerodynamic and it'll fly through the air a little better mm -hmm. um, to keep that smooth shape the wheels they'll retract under into the underside of the plane and then it's got the little trap door that closes and hides the hides the wheels mm -hmm. um, so a common arrangement of the wheels in an aircraft like the ones that was used for flight 401 is to have two at the back on either side and one at the front so it's basically a big tricycle <laughs> a giant flying tricycle you know yes when 401 pulled the lever to lower the wheels there's some green lights in the cockpit. It's They have three green lights uh, that should have lit up to indicate to the crew that all the wheels were down and locked into position. However, on this flight, the light for the front wheel didn't light up. The process was repeated, but there was still no green light. At this point, there were two possibilities. Either the front wheel was stuck and unable to lower properly, or the front wheel was down and locked, but the indicator system was faulty. They were unsure of what the issue was, so they decided to avoid landing until they took care of the problem and made sure that everything was fine. The control tower instructed them to abandon the landing and climb to 2,000 feet. The captain said, I, I gotta raise it back up, now I'm gonna try it down one more time. Co-pilot confirmed. And then you have the sound of the altitude alert horn, the low altitude alarm. The co-pilot said, well, wanna tell them we'll take it around and circle around and they were, they were going to come back and try the landing again. So they told the air traffic controller what they were going to do, and they confirmed and told them to pull up and climb to 2,000 feet. So the crew talked about testing and shaking the light fixture, hoping it was hoping it was just the, uh, you know, a faulty bulb or something like that, and they could easily fix it. And the captain informed the tower that they were not landing and were in the process of doing as, as they were instructed and in getting to 2,000 feet. The flight engineer asked if he if uh, they wanted him to test the lights or not. The captain confirmed that he did, so he told him to check it. The co-pilot spoke and said, "Bob, it might be the light. Could you jiggle the light a little?" The flight engineer responded, "It's it's got to come out a little bit and then snap in." The captain told the air traffic controller they were going up to 2,000 feet, and once they re re reached the requested altitude, the co-pilot asked the captain if he should continue flying while the captain took the supporting role. He allowed the co-pilot to continue flying and then asked the flight engineer about the hydraulic system pressure while the new instructions came in from air traffic control asking them to maintain that 2,000 foot altitude. The captain would then ask the co-pilot to activate the autopilot so that they could work on the issue. 
I'm terrified of flying, so I don't do it much. But 2,000 is really low, isn't it? Yeah, it's not that high up when you consider that usually like, the cruising altitude is like 30,000 feet. That's what I mean. Like, I'm not yeah. saying they're like, grazing feet. the ground, but... Yeah, no, but they're a lot lower than the, than the than standard normal. cruising altitude. So they did all of their checks, the hydraulic pressure, all their systems again, and everything Everything looked fine. It was just this indicator light was not turning on to tell them if the light or if the wheel was down or not. So this particular aircraft had a different way to check if the wheel was down. This is going to lead to more questions that I unfortunately did not find the answer to. Because that's kind of our thing, apparently. Yeah, yeah. We there's just, like we just like bringing questions into the world. Pretty much, yeah. There was a hatch that led to the area underneath the cockpit, and it was called the hellhole. Oh, it sounds like a real fun place to be. Uh huh. This area had a visual system that would allow a crew member to check and see if the front wheel was down. The captain sent the flight engineer down into the hellhole to check on the wheel and clear up any confusion as to whether or not the light was faulty or not. Meanwhile, the co-pilot was attempting to correct the indicator light that got jammed. So when they go down into the hole, it's kind of like a, a periscope system. Basically, they can just literally peek out a window and look visually at the wheel to see if it's down or not. So the captain said, hey, get down there and see if that nose wheel is down. The co-pilot said, you got a handkerchief or something so I can get a little better grip on this, referring to the light. He was trying to pop it back in after they took it out. They're still going through telling the engineer to check and see if the wheel's down. Meanwhile, the co-pilot's fiddling with the light. The co-pilot says, this won't come out. I need a pair of pliers. I could cushion it with a Kleenex or tissue paper or something. And the flight engineer warned him, I can give you pliers, but if you force it, you'll break it. Just believe me. So they were going to try the Kleenex method instead because, you know... Yeah. What could go wrong with that? So that's when Captain finally told the flight engineer to head down and, and visually check the light. The captain then would speak to air traffic control through the radio and requested more time to check on the faulty light, as well as performing a check on how much fuel they had left. They returned their focus on the faulty light and had guessed that the wheel was down, but since that light wasn't coming on, that kept confusing them and that kept their attention because they were like, well, if the wheel is down, why is this not coming on? What What is wrong with this light? Now, while they're doing this, the low altitude alarm went off for a moment. But since the engineer was under the cockpit, there was no one to hear the low altitude alarm. The co-pilot was still attempting to repair the light and informed the captain that it was stuck. The captain then told him to leave it alone. So that's uh, he told the air traffic controller, I'll go out west a little further if we can here, and we'll see if we can get this light to come on. And the air traffic controller confirmed. They're checking to see how much fuel they've got left. And yeah, at this point... The they they don't carry a lot of extra fuel. Like, they, they have a little bit, but not a ton. Yeah. Yeah, they, they don't have enough to, like, keep circling forever. I know that because I've seen Die Hard 2. Yeah... Another movie that you should not watch if you're afraid of flying. That sounds like a great movie to watch after listening to this. No. I'm sure it'll be fine. I also, I've only seen it once because it scared the poop out of me. But the first Final Destination, is that it? The the one where, like... Oh god, yeah, the, this, this is the first one, yeah, with the plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Never watching that movie again. Yeah, no. I think that's the, I think it's the second, or it might be the first one as well, that messed people up about riding behind a truck carrying logs. That was the first one. That was the first yep. one, because I never watched any of the others, and I know that mm -hmm. scene. Yeah, don't watch any of the other ones, because the other ones will ruin you on roller coasters, too. Speaking from experience. Anyway. 
I don't know. I I'm scared by the weirdest movies though. Like I I, mean, I feel that. Well, yeah. So like we've we've talked about the Ernest Halloween movie, but yes. I also I I had recurring nightmares for a couple months after seeing Jeepers Creepers, the first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Chris was like, that one's that not thing. that mm-hmm. scary. I was like, it is. And I used to like that song. Like, Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get and the then, peepers? And then I watched and that then movie. And then the movie. And now you're like, no, no. Ruined that song for me. Anyway... We're now at a point where we've got our co-pilot and our pilot trying to figure out why this wheel indicator light is not coming down. The low altitude alarm has came on, but the engineer is under the cockpit trying to check the wheel. And so no one heard this at low altitude alert. So they're going through and the flight engineer finally comes up out of the hellhole and informs the captain that he was unable to use the backup system to check the wheel. Apparently there was an issue with that as well, and so he was unable to confirm visually if the wheel was down or not. Afterwards, he descended back down into the hole, this time accompanied by the off-duty ground engineer. Flight engineer would say, I, I don't see it down there. The flight engineer was not able to see through the visual system to confirm if the wheel's down. This is what he was referring to. Uh, so the captain says, you can't see that for the nose wheel. There's a, there's a little bit here that they couldn't decipher, so there's a bit of a gap there. You can't see that something for the nose wheel. There's a place in there you can look and see if they're lined up. Referring to if the front wheel was correctly down, the two rods would be seen to be aligned. They couldn't see something was blocking their view. But like I said, it's like a little telescope that you can see if these two rods are aligned or not. But later on, the autopilot system that had been flying the plane, while they had tried to figure out what was going on with the light and the wheel, it was supposed to have maintained an altitude of 2,000 feet. Unfortunately, it didn't, and the aircraft was had, had slowly started to descend. The crew was so focused on this faulty light that they didn't check the autopilot to ensure that it was working correctly. Had they glanced at the three altitude indicators that were in front of them on the console, they would have been alerted that they were not maintaining altitude. When the co-pilot realized that there was a problem, it was too late and the aircraft would crash nearly 20 miles from the runway in the Florida Everglades. Oh no. The last bit of... Uh, recording on the black box audio was between the captain and the co-pilot. The captain would say, we did something to the altitude. We're still at 2,000, right? The captain would then say, hey, what's happening here? Then there's the sound of a click, and then the sound of six beeps similar to the radio altimeter increasing in rate. It's a special type of altimeter alarming that the altitude is decreasing, and then you hear the sound of the impact. So after investigators went out to the crash site, they managed to recover the indicator lights from the wreckage, they found that the bulbs were burnt out. So these tiny bulbs led to the deaths of 103 people. And it's possible that a crew member had bumped into the control column without noticing, at which point the autopilot would have disengaged. So it was a a situation where you turn it on, but as soon as you move the control column, it disengages. So he kind of most like likely cruise control in your car. As soon as you hit the gas yeah. or the brake, it turns off. Yeah, but so he must have bumped in, or one of them must have bumped into the control column while they were focusing on the light and just didn't notice that they hit it. Uh, so around 11.43 p.m., air traffic control in Miami would receive a message from another aircraft that they had seen an explosion nearby, and Flight 401 had hit the ground at 227 miles per hour, sending the plane into a cartwheel as the left wing tip hit the ground. The the plane would break up into several pieces and would travel for over a third of a mile before stopping. 
The first person to get on the scene of the crash was Robert Marquis, who had been catching frogs with a, with a friend on his airboat. Uh, when he saw the orange fireball in the sky, and when he saw that, he knew that he was seeing a plane crash. So he turned his boat toward the crash site, and a nearby Coast Guard helicopter also saw the explosion and was headed there. So thankfully, people were able to see it and head out there as soon as they could to help. Yeah, I, I'm not making light of the situation, but I will say that someone catching frogs in the Everglades is one of the most Floridian swamp things I've ever heard. Exactly, yes. In the middle of the night. We'll let that I was just thinking about it because of, you know, me and 75 frogs and this guy was catching frogs. That's the first thing that came to my mind, but, you I'm know. not going to say that brings me any joy. Anyway. Yeah, but that's... The fact that a Coast Guard helicopter saw it, though, is good because, yes, it's great that Robert and his friend could get there, but the Coast Guard would have medical training. So if there are survivors... Yeah, they would be able to call for backup as well. They would have yeah. a radio to call someone. Yeah, they would have a radio. They could help some of the survivors. They could maybe start, you know, they'd have a fire extinguisher. When it had crashed... Beverly Raposa had survived, and she was one of the um, flight attendants, and she now found herself in the muddy water of the Everglades. She would then start gathering survivors and begin shouting for others to follow the sound of her voice, where they would all kind of huddle together until they were rescued. But once she realized that they were soaked in jet fuel, she calmly told everyone to not light matches for light, and they all sang Christmas carols to keep up their spirits until the Coast Guard could track them down. Uh, Marquis actually helped them because he had the spotlight on his uh, his boat, so oh, he was good. actually able to assist. He was able to assist the Coast Guard in locating survivors. Um, he he swung his actually whenever he got to the uh, the crash, he he would swing his lamp around to signal the helicopter where they were at. Yeah, because he with the boat, he was actually able to get in a little bit closer than you know. And then the Coast Guard could find somewhere to land and get to them. Right, I'm actually. Oddly surprised that you have not mentioned any alligators yet, because we are in the Everglades and they are everywhere, as well as poisonous snakes. And surprisingly, I didn't see anything about alligators or snakes. Oh, so one time when I was a kid, we went down to Orlando and we went to, I think it was Jungle Land or Gatorland. We went to both of them at different times. Gatorland sounds about right. Well, they both exist. It's just, I can't remember which one has it, where they have a quote-unquote nature walk through the swamp, and it has, like, these rickety wooden boards as the pathway, and it's Mm -hmm. literally just these boards, no railings, nothing clearing it out around you. So you're literally just in the frickin' swamp. And my dad thought it was amazing. I was terrified. No, it's not. You wanna go to Gatorland? Actually, so Gatorland's awesome. If you're not in the middle of the swamp, like they have um, this like deck that you can like look out over the swamp and everything. So you can see the nature, you can see the beauty, but you're not in it. You're not going to have some poisonous snake fall out of a tree and bite you. Fair enough. Now, I don't know if that ever happened, but I was not taking chances. I mean, there's probably a a chance of that happening. I mean... Yeah, I just... It's probably rare, but, I mean, you have to be walking under a tree at the same time a poisonous snake is in the tree and falling out. Yeah. I just went as quickly as possible, and I was like, I'm done. Fair enough. But now we can get into the spooky part of our story. 
Not long after this crash, people would begin to report strange things happening on Eastern Airlines flights. There were many accounts of people seeing and even speaking with crew members of Flight 401. It started off... Yeah... It, it started off as simple as just seeing a figure standing in the aisles or occupying the cockpit, though the reports would get a little more interesting and unsettling as time went on. One witness, a flight passenger, described seeing an ashen-looking person sitting in one of the seats appearing to be dazed and unresponsive. When she called for an attendant to help, the man disappeared right in front of them. This woman was so startled at seeing this that she had to be restrained until she calmed down. She was then shown several photos of some of the crew members, and she specifically pointed out Don Repo as the man that she had saw. These appearances would happen... Hmm? So he was the flight engineer? The engineer was Don Repo, yes. So he was okay. the engineer. But he was back in the, like, passenger seats? Yeah, he was just sitting in one of the seats. That's weird, because maybe... I mean, it, it's a haunted plane, so it's probably not the same as a haunted house, but... When you when you have a house, you you know, the the ghost roams the house. You would think that he would be up in the cockpit, not just think, sitting in one of the passenger seats. People reported seeing the engineer, and I believe it was the captain. I believe Bob Loft was the captain. They reported seeing those two, but not never in the same place. They would be in different places throughout the plane. It was wow. never the same place. How? So these appearances would happen on, in several places on the flights, not just in the cabin. Another incident happened during one of the flight's pre-checks. Bob Loft was spotted wandering around the underside of the plane, and some people say that he even spoke to the ground crew and said that no checks were required because he had already done them. Oh, yeah, the I'm going to believe the ghost on yeah. that this flight is okay. The pilots of this flight were so unsettled by hearing this that they canceled the flight. I wouldn't I wouldn't blame them. They were they were just like, no, I'm I'm not flying this plane. Alright, never mind. Okay, thanks. Bye. Though Captain Bob Loft is often considered one of the more notorious subjects to make appearances, the majority of sightings are actually of Don Repo, the flight engineer. A working flight attendant once saw an engineer repairing an oven. When the only engineer on board heard of this, he denied ever working on the oven and even stated that it didn't need to be fixed in the first place. Much like other encounters... So, did the... did the ghost fix it or break it? Because <laughs> if no it didn't idea. need maybe... to be fixed and he worked on it, maybe he broke it. Maybe he did. And I, I, I don't know if they checked the oven after that and found something wrong or not. I, it didn't. There wasn't really a follow-up. I don't think no one ch anyone checked the oven. I feel like the lamest, malicious thing a ghost could do is to Just break mess your, with oven. your oven. <laughs> it's like I could take down this whole plane, or I could break the oven. Their food won't heat properly. I mean, that is something kind of upsetting. I mean, yeah. And airplane Much... food's not that great to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's like Howl's Moving Castle. May all your bacon burn. He was messing with the stove, so that way it was gonna burn the food. <laughs> Although I was gonna, I was just gonna say I'm gonna flaunt here for a moment, but I I say that airplane food is bad, but I I did not pay for it, but I was upgraded to first class once, and that'll probably be the first, only time I ever ride first class. But that food was pretty good. So was the later. Sounds nice. Yeah, it was. And then they give you a hot paper towel because they don't do hot towels anymore. And 
That was we have weird. downgraded to hot paper towels. <laughs> Here's a hot paper towel. I was like, hot what napkin. Do, what am I supposed hot to napkin? do with this? It was weird. Much like other encounters, the attendant was once again shown crew photos and also, again, pointed out Don Repo as the one she saw fixing the oven. Fixing in quotes. Yes. A pilot on another flight became concerned when he heard a knocking sound coming from underneath the cockpit. Worried that there was a serious issue with the plane, he opened up the trap door to the lower compartment and came face to face with Don Repo, who would then disappear right in front of the pilot. Because that's something I want to see when I'm flying a plane and I open up a hatch where there's no one supposed to be down there is a person, and then they disappear. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a big fat nope. But he didn't completely nope out. He investigated further and discovered a problem that could have caused a serious accident if not taken care of. Oh so my technically, God. the ghost helped by so, drawing his attention to that area. It's a beneficial ghost. It sounds like it. It's a friendly. It's Casper. My God, Casper the Friendly Ghost is flying first class. I feel like we need Casper on a plane as a movie now. Why would Casper have to go on a plane? He's a ghost. Can, can fly. Why, why are these ghosts on a plane? There's many questions here. The attendant of another flight was in the galley when she saw the face of Don Repo looking back at her from an oven. She saw his face in the reflection of the oven. She even had time, like, he, the, the reflection stayed there long enough that she had time to call over other crew members who were also down there in the galley to confirm that she was seeing this. The flight engineer on board was a personal friend of Repo and was immediately able to identify who he was. Oh, wow. According to the, yeah, according to the witnesses, Repo would then warn them about a fire on the plane. I, you hear this and you see this, but you, but for some reason, they didn't really think much about it and didn't really take it seriously. So during the flight, they began to have issues with the engine that were the result of a fire that no one knew about. Like, can you imagine being like, okay, this is creepy. I saw a ghost. I'm not going to believe in all this stuff. I'm just going to go on. Don't matter. And then you find out that, oh, my God, there actually was a fire and I could have done something earlier i mean at least yeah, it at sounds least, like they yeah that, that plane i don't think crashed because it didn't say that plane crashed it said there were just some issues with the engine okay that's good that's good yeah so i think it was it was most likely like a small fire that was like while they were flying okay and it like alerted them to some issues and they were able to take care of it so i don't think the plane crashed at least what i, I could see didn't look like it did right i'm sure the, you would have found a lot about that if that had happened yeah, no, the, 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 actually this one didn't because it, it uh, later on I remember seeing it said uh, the final portion of this flight was actually canceled because of that. So they like stopped about halfway or so. Like an emergency. The, yeah, yeah, they, they made an emergency an stop somewhere. And all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. But these planes weren't the only hotspot of supernatural activity. Hunters, poachers, and wildlife enthusiasts had reported sightings in the area of the crash for months. Some reported seeing screaming faces looking back at them from the water below in the swamp, or even seeing things dressed in tattered clothing drifting along the swamp. That makes me think of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yep, that's immediately the thought I had. That, ah, uh, that's creepy. And then, oh god, um, you know how, like, Frodo gets pulled under the water and you see mm -hmm. all this stuff? Like, what if that's what happened if they had gone under... Not the like hell Never going into the Florida Everglades. All right. Yeah. Scratch that well, one I mean, off my list. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, the Everglades are big, so you could go yeah. to a different part of them. True. Does that make it better? <laughs> kind of, I guess, maybe. You're welcome. But the reason for the uh, the hauntings on the flights were some people believe that Eastern Airlines had reused undamaged parts from Flight 401 on other planes. The airline company would officially deny these claims, although they wouldn't allow anyone to investigate. Now, Reports is, would have... that, is that legal? to like If you have a plane crash, are you allowed to reuse that stuff? I would have thought that that would have gotten like... I would have thought that would be a no, but if they're undamaged and there's nothing wrong with those parts, like if they test them enough and like make sure there's there is literally nothing wrong with them, then I could see that being a thing. But I guess I just like this was 1972 also. So okay, fair, fair, because like policies may have changed. Yeah, I'm just thinking like if you have a a crime, they save the evidence. They put it in a exactly. box and they save the evidence. So yeah. this isn't a crime, but like I would think that all of those pieces would be like put together and stored so that they could examine them repeatedly and things like that. Yeah. That just makes me feel creepy. Yeah, hopefully they, they're still not doing that. I know what I'm Googling after the episode. Fair enough. <laughs> But reports would eventually begin to circulate that aircraft engineers quietly removed any materials that were reused from Flight 401, and apparently all paranormal activity stopped once they did this. You know, they removed the stuff that they didn't put in the planes, right? Yeah, fair enough. Especially in the 70s, I could see them being like, well, let's save some money and just use this stuff. Exactly. It's just a seat. It's just a seat. You know, that might be why... Uh, Don Repo was in the cabin is because like that might have been I know the, the the pilot seats are probably different seats than the passenger seats but but the maybe the, that was the engineers isn't maybe not that was the thing I thought about was like well if he's in that seat maybe that was one of the pilot seats or engineer seats or maybe when the plane crashed he was thrown through the cabin and ended up at that seat who knows? There the was plane. there was photos of this wreck, and it was just like a scrap pile. There was just pieces everywhere, so like the yeah. plane parts, like engines all over the place. And but that is about all I could find on flight four hundred one. So I hope uh, you will enjoy your next flight. It better not be for a while. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm oh god, that's scary. Okay, thanks, Kraken. And that was another exciting episode of Cracko Tales. That was another episode of Moe's Not Gonna Sleep Tonight. Yay, my job is done. Well, thank you for the story, as always. I always find the stuff you find fascinating, because I never... Well, there's many reasons I would not look into a story like this. A lot of them have to do because I'm scared of flying. I am a very, very nervous flyer. Although the last time I did really well because of therapy and lorazepam, but... Uh, next I mean, time's gonna be start. fun. Before we head out here for the episode, uh, we do want to thank you as always, and we wanted to let you guys know if you ever check out our website, thesquonkandthehank.com, you will notice there have been some updates over the weekend. So we have, and by we, I mean, I took it on as like my little pet project. I'm focusing on search engine optimization because I think it's fun, and that's probably not something most people ever say in their life. 
but I had to adjust the designs a little bit to help with the optimizations. So we freshened up a little, we have some, some nice new layouts, some new pages going up, and we are starting to get more posts making their way onto the site. So if you want to check it out, let us know how we did. We'd appreciate it. My review is 10 out of 10, very fancy. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That'll be it for us tonight. And later, nerds. <laughs> As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.